Today's episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo is presented by State Farm. Like any good friend, State Farm agents are there for you. In fact, over 19,000 agents are ready to help with home and auto insurance. As the largest auto insurer in the U.S., State Farm agents are here to help. Check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Welcome to the very first episode of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. We're recording this August 14th of 2019 at the Ringer Studios in Los Angeles, California. If you don't know already, uh, CT and I play in a band called Vampire Weekend, something we've been doing for the past 12 years. And even though we try to run away from this pure fact, we are both named Chris. That is true indeed. We are both named Chris. So I am Chris Thompson, but as I introduce myself, most people call me CT, and I slap the tubs, a.k.a. play the drums in Vampire Weekend. CT, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm sort of disappointed you have to ask that. I feel like we know each other very well, but I suppose (laughs) that there's a greater good in all of this. I grew up in New Jersey, which is, I think, fairly formative for me and still sort of definitional. I... (laughs) I love sports, Woo! love getting physical, and have only started taking drum lessons within the last six months. Well, I'm Chris Bayo, but people just call me Bayo. And a little bit about me. I love spicy food. In 2012, I had a perirectal abscess surgery, and I am part of a Sex in the City trivia team. How'd you do? You had one yeah, last was, night. Yeah, last night. Um, well, our team's called I'm Sorry, I Can't, Don't Hate Me, and we finished fourth which was particularly excruciating because the top three are the ones that get the prize, which is a tote bag with a Sex in the City quote on it and some beauty products inside. And I really want one of those totes with beauty products, but we were the highest scoring team not to get one. So it was pretty excruciating. You'll get on the podium next time. I hope so. So anyway, you might be wondering what exactly this podcast is all about. And as Bayo said earlier, we've been touring together for 12-ish years or so, all the way from... 10 people in Denton, Texas, to the occasional basketball arena, but just generally bigger venues as we go forth now. And there have been a lot of interesting experiences we've had along the way. And the idea of this was to share those experiences, particularly through conversations with our peers, our idols, and honestly, anyone in between who who wanted to talk to us about this. Yeah. Touring is this weird thing where you're on stage for two hours a night and it's thrilling, exciting, and life-affirming, but the other 22 hours of the day is a whole different story. Or 23 hours, or 23 and a half, depending on how long your set is. But yes, as thrilling as it can be on the road, it's also a very turbulent and, quite frankly, confusing lifestyle. Like, for me, the impetus for this project honestly really came from an extended break from touring. We toured really heavily with Vampire Weekend from 2007 to 2014, and immediately after that, we had a few quiet years. And in those years, I struggled a little bit. A lot of the times, I was trying to think back and figure out what it had all meant. Yeah, it's interesting uh, when you say that, because my experience was definitely different. Uh, I remained pretty active during the break with the band, and I never really had the chance to miss touring. Uh, We've talked about this. We've basically done the exact same thing for the last 12 years, but I have a vastly different experience in some regards. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that that applies to the people we're talking to and these peers, idols, and aforementioned anyone. Totally. 
And look, the goal of this podcast isn't for us to just sit around and tell stories about partying or legendary farts. Although, to be fair, I have done my fair share of both. I can neither confirm nor deny that. But in any case, this podcast is not going to be about that. And also, it's not going to be about Vampire Weekend news or updates. Obviously, we love and are proud to be part of Vampire Weekend. But for this podcast, we are not speaking on behalf of the band. We're speaking for ourselves and from our experiences. Cool. So now that that's out of the way, let's actually talk about today's show. Yes. So we had an awesome opportunity to sit down with our great friend and, I would say, iconic drummer, Patrick Carney of the Black Keys, amongst other things. And we had a great conversation. We talked about being the court jesters at what felt like an Illuminati party at the Mandalay Bay Casino, the benefits of hypnotism, and something that is slightly more universal, and that is the, the idea and the importance of rehearsal, or lack thereof. So, CT, we've rehearsed together in different spaces for uh, going back to the year 2006. What would you say is your philosophy of rehearsal? Uh, it's definitely changed over the years. Yeah. I think in 2006, it was simply do whatever I could do and straight up not think mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't really know how to play the drums right. at the time. And for better or worse, a lot of the best stuff that I came up with that sort of worked and, you know, especially that the first album stuff was when I was not thinking, which has proven hard to replicate as we've, <laughs> as we've had a career and thinking becomes more and more important. Um, when I think of rehearsal, I still think of ultrasound, which is a rent-by-the-hour place in the dirty 30s of Manhattan. I believe the rate was about 25 an hour. Yeah, sounds like right. That. Yeah, totally. Uh, and we'd, we'd track with our guitars and cymbals? No. They had cymbals there? I think they had cymbals they had there. Cymbals there. I think they had cymbals there, yeah. But we, we needed chords and uh, stringed instruments. And I don't know, yeah, I guess I feel like when I think of rehearsal, I still kind of think of those 2006 days in ultrasound. Do you remember what street ultrasound is on? I want to say 30th or 29. I think 30th, but I'm not sure. Uh, someone will have to fact check us and email us about it afterwards. But do you remember what building we would walk by on the way to ultrasound when you get off at the Penn Station subway? There's multiple buildings, including a barbecue restaurant and a very classic New York Irish pub. But I believe what you're referring to is the building on top of Penn Station, which is Madison Square Garden. Absolutely. That was, in fact, the building I was thinking about. That was a leading question. It was. I, I was trying to take you somewhere, <laughs> but I just remember when we would go into ultrasound, like, the joke, and it was definitely pretty ironic at the time because we were playing places like Pete's Candy Store that fit, like, 30 people, but we were saying, all right, one day we're going to play the garden. One day we're going to do it. And listener, as you hear this, believe it or not, we are going to be playing the garden for the first time in about two and a half weeks. That's just a little aside uh, maybe, about rehearsal. Maybe we should take we should take a trip to the Chipotle that we used to eat at after after ultrasound rehearsals to really bring it full circle. I would love to do that. Yeah, definitely. So, I, okay, how has rehearsing changed now? When you think of rehearsing in the last couple of years of your life, what do you think of? Uh, well, rehearsing is now a lot more about instead of maybe coming up or finding new ground, it's sort of solidifying the ground that you see in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly for the touring that we're doing right now for Father of the Bride, 
at a venue near you, my God. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, a lot of what we've done is sort of taking these songs that are quite expansive mm-hmm. and sometimes even expanding them more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, instead of, I see it more as a, an act of refining now. Do you consider your weightlifting to be part of your rehearsal <laughs> regimen? Uh, I consider it to be an additive. And yes, mentally, yeah. not really physically. Yeah, I guess because I want, like, if people don't know what you've looked like or what your physical transformation has been in advance of this tour, you've gotten fucking ripped. And it's a blessing to share the stage with your arms, your biceps every single night. Well, I appreci- After we played, when we played at uh, The Tonight Show afterwards, my wife called me and said she wished that someone had oiled up CT's biceps before the performance because they looked so good on TV. So I just, I know, people don't know how, how much you've dedicated yourself to this tour and to being in peak physical shape. And I think that that's something that's different from when we would play together like back in 2006. So when you're, when you're hitting the gym, when you're it's doing just my two buys a day, and dress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you're doing your two-a-days, is that part of rehearsal for you? Do you think of it that way? Um, I think of, <laughs> I, <laughs> again, I think of it as a mental exercise. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a certain degree of uh, confidence, maybe, mm-hmm. of walking on stage and <laughs> looking like, jacked and looking like an Adonis. Oh, I, well, I didn't say it, people. Um, <laughs> the Let's say it's part of preparation, if not rehearsing specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but to appease Chris's wife, if there's any professional oil men or oil women <laughs> in the Madison Square Garden area, 50 bucks an arm, I guess. I don't, I don't know what, what the oiling rate is. Okay, nice. I like that. I'll go, let's say 50 bucks an arm. Wait, do you pay them or do they pay you? I would pay that. Okay. It's their profession. Gotcha. I wouldn't want to insult them by... You're right. It's not (laughs) that much of a privilege. Um, Unfortunately, though, we did not talk to Patrick about his physical fitness regimen in this this interview. We talked about more salient topics. But just to set the scene a little bit, we were playing Nashville. Vampire Weekend was playing Nashville. And we had a day off and took the opportunity to visit Pat in his beautiful home. And we started this conversation kind of a, I would define it as a smoky late night session. It's definitely a smoky late night podcast record. Um, it was at about 1130 that we started talking after we had a lovely dinner with Pat and his wife, Michelle Branch. And I don't know if you'll be able to hear it in the audio, but he was smoking a pipe while we were talking to him. And I, I was thinking about this earlier today, but the only other person I've ever hung out with who smoked from a pipe was my father when I was like a little kid. And I actually do feel like Pat has a bit of a paternal energy toward us. I know we're basically the same age. He's a little bit older, but it felt a little bit like getting advice and hanging out with a, a new father figure in my life. I don't know if you feel that way, CT. I mean, he produced your first solo record. So I, I think the producer role is pretty paternal. I would definitely put him in my top five of dads? father figures top in, five my, dads? in my lifetime. Great. Uh, and this was before I even knew about the whole pipe situation, which was new to me yeah, yeah. during this talk. But in any case, he's a very smart guy. Very insightful, which I've always appreciated. And I think most of all, very forthcoming in a way that I think is rare and I think should be celebrated in some ways. So it was a great honor to talk to him for this first edition of The Road Taken. And we should probably say the Black Keys new album, Let's Rock, is out. It's wonderful. And they're going to be on tour this fall, so you should check them out. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Pat Carney of the Black Keys. All 
All right, well, we are now sitting here in the Golden Platinum Strewn studio of one Mr. Patrick Carney. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. There's any number of ways we could go about this or, or start, but I think it's interesting to me because right now when we're sitting here, you were saying that the Black Keys' first rehearsals in how long or next week? Well, we haven't played a show since 2015. And we haven't rehearsed. I mean, we don't. We never really rehearsed that much. Even when you're doing arenas and... No, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the th- we started the band kind of by accident because we grew up together, you know, and I had this digital recorder, like a 12-track thing, like a hard disc. It was like cutting edge in 2001. What was the media? Just like, like mini-disc or... Just like a scuzzy drive attached into something. <laughs> it was like a Korg. Okay. You know, I just step up from a cassette recorder. But anyway, I bought this thing. And Dan had this like kind of um, bar band. That's what he did for work. We like played these bars. He wanted me to record them, him and his bass player and drummer, on my new recorder. Because we, 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 we grew up like recording on my four track and stuff. And we hadn't spoken in like about a year or two or something. And he knew I got this thing because I ran into him at a record store or something. So he came to my house, but the other guys never showed up. Fortuitous. So it was just him. We just sat there and waited. And then finally he's like, why don't you play drums And I, like you used to? And the only time I ever played drums was like jamming with him. Because I, I considered myself a guitar player. So anyway, we... We went down to my basement and recorded these songs I'd never heard. I'd never played drums to. Just I made up some beats. And it became our demo right then, that afternoon. We made like six songs in like two hours. I spent a couple weeks or a week messing with the mix and stuff. And we mailed it out and we got this record deal with this little label in LA, in Burbank. The guy's like, I won't give you any money, but I'll pay to master it. All you have to do is figure out a way to record it and send me 11 or 12 songs. And so we were like, okay, we have this record deal. We mailed it to like 20 different companies at the time just to see what would happen. And yeah. This guy, this is the first guy I wrote back so we could get a deal. So anyway, the point is, is that we started the band to write songs. It was an accident, you know, but we, we got a kick out of recording the tunes. So we made a record that in like this winter, spring 2002. And then that summer, after the record came out that May, we, we sat around, and the only time we ever kind of rehearsed was that summer, waiting to get... It was summer 2002. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> waiting to get more gigs. We go on a tour, and we quit our jobs mowing lawns, and we were able to make like 50 to to $100 each a week for a while, playing gigs every, every, here and there. But when we didn't have gigs, we get together still, because we didn't have enough tunes to fill up an hour yet. Right. So we would like work on more songs. So we ended up rehearsing a lot that summer, 2002. Yeah. But other, after that, <laughs> we never rehearsed. So yeah. these are your first rehearsals in 17 years? Well, no. We rehearsed for three days in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Because it's our first time we did a tour with um, a bass player and a keyboard player. We Nick Movshan played bass and Leah Michael played keyboards. And we, we had him come to Akron and we rehearsed for three days. And then we met him in New York, and our first show was at Madison Square Garden, <laughs> <laughs> opening for Pearl Jam. And that was the first time we ever played as a four-piece. Was it MSG? Was it MSG? 
<laughs> oh, that's funny because you're talking to two dudes who just rehearsed for 14 months. <laughs> we did you guys really? Yes, we did. We rehearsed for 14 months. Seriously? Yes, we did. <laughs> really? Yeah, I guess standards don't take it that all that seriously. <laughs> I think our thing is like if it's that hard, just fuck it. (laughs) I mean, how many rehearsals do you have scheduled on the books? Well, okay, so then check it out. We've had a few rehearsals. That 2010, we had a rehearsal. We had a rehearsal. We rented SIR for like two days in 2011 to learn the new songs off El Camino with a bass player and keyboard player, and our first show. For those songs was on SNL. <laughs> we first time so we you, played. So you pick and choose the important moments you rehearse. Well, for. we did the exact same thing for Turn Blue. We rehearsed for like two or three days here in Nashville, and then we went and played SNL. <laughs> Both probably bad decisions. But at this time, what we're going to do is we're supposed to rehearse for like five hours a day for five days. And it's more, it's more like that's pretty yeah, grueling, Pat. And that was well, like more of like testing the waters just to get back in the group. But then we're, we're our real rehearsal is like uh, we're doing six or seven days before the tour starts. So this fall, like in August yeah, or something, or whatever. Week before the tour starts, yeah. How are you? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I just captured it. I love I, this. Well, yeah. I can't. I can't believe you guys rehearsed for fourteen months. I mean, I, uh, you guys must sound amazing. <laughs> I mean, we're pretty tight right now. We didn't start the first day of rehearsals being like, this is going to be incredible 14 months of rehearsals. Yeah. But at the end of it, now we're sort of like two weeks into our first our was first situation where it was like the record kept getting worked on. Yes. Yeah, essentially. Okay. And it kind of, so kind of kept getting yeah, pushed. Yeah. It was, that wasn't necessarily the plan. Yeah. And it even saying that we rehearsed for 14 months is, is a lot of rehearsing to be sure. However, we're now two weeks into our first real bus tour yeah. and we sound pretty tight. And we sound significantly further along yeah, and road tested or quote unquote. I mean, but to be fair, we still would have rehearsed for multiple months. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. But so wait, is it just well, every band's different? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, no, but I mean, uh, you guys I, know like time signatures and things like that. Every we album, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. But every album before this one, it would be like we'd rehearse for a week and then start the album cycle. This is new for us. Because you took the the break, so you had to get back in the thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Had to build kind of like a new I, thing. I, I'm a little bit nervous. I keep having this dream that we're walking out on stage and we both realize we forgot to rehearse. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened to you in real life? Have you ever been on stage with Dan and being like, oh, fuck, what are, like, what are we doing here? Uh, so that, um... Yeah, I mean, not in a musical like what's happening musically, but yeah. like, how do we get here? Yeah, how do we end up in this corporate show <laughs> at Mandalay Bay where no one's watching us and we're making more money than we've ever gotten in our life? That, that has happened. Do you remember what corporation that was? I can't say, but they paid okay. us handsomely. <laughs> it was our first. Thing. It was our first. It was like our second. We've only done a handful of them. They're usually for like a Star Wars convention, basically. <laughs> But this was, it was an unoffensive company, but no one watched us. And it was, I ended up, it was so nerve wracking, just the empty. You mean, oh, the like having been playing sold out shows for years and years and years to suddenly. It was unner- be playing oh, for it, a, not nerve wracking, it was unnerving. Oh, un- oh, oh, said, eerie. It, it yeah. was just like very creepy. You know, Mandalay Bay, there's like a big pool. 
Can't say I've ever been. Okay, I've only been this one time. There's a big pool that people can stand in. It's like a foot of Watch water. Watch you perform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a whole like 6,000 people. I, yeah, well, there was like two people. <laughs> and it was insane. And we were getting paid like half a million dollars or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was like... This is the moment where like, what the fuck is happening? Because it's like, I like, well, I literally think the last time we played Vegas before this was, we were playing at some strip mall outside the town for like fifty bucks. So we increased by ten thousand times, times, and no one was watching it. Literally, like two people were watching us, and it was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> this is in two thousand eleven. Like, what the fuck yeah. is happening? Um, and now what? The, then the, the best part is. After we finish, a Lady Gaga impersonator comes on, and like the whole five thousand oh immediately turns to the floods stage. open. We're like, what <laughs> just happened? That's right. You probably hit the hit the tables, and you had a you had a decent night. Um. Okay. So let's let's go back to these rehearsals, though. These these big five days of rehearsals. How do you feel? I know you've done some shows and you toured with um your now. Oh, wife, by the way, that Michelle. was more money we got paid for every record we've ever made combined. Up to that point, yeah, yeah, just yeah. That's to play for so two you people in, in a you pool. can't say no to that thing. Then even of course, so, but, oh, yeah, of but, course. But, but even it does feel filthy. It does feel gross when you're on stage and no one's watching. You're like oh. we're like the court jester for the Illuminati, right? <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. So I wanted to ask how you feel on the eve, or more or less eve, of these rehearsals after having not done a Black Keys show. In five years, four years, we haven't done one since August, mid-August of 2015. So okay, so almost a full four years. Almost a four four. Years. Longest, How you longest break? Oh yeah, longest yeah. break. How you feel heading back into thinking about performing again? Thinking about playing tunes you probably haven't thought about in a while. I mean, I haven't been thinking about it too much. <laughs> I'm excited to play the shows, but I'm, you know, for me, I'm not like the kind of drummer or. Like it's like I can't sit around and practice by myself. I mean, I can put on headphones, like play along to the song or something. But our band's always been kind of loose. Is better mm-hmm. to a certain degree. So honestly, it's like I I learned to play drums playing with Dan, and I only really have played drums live with him. So for me, it's I know that once we start playing, it will come together. At one point in 2015, I broke my shoulder early 2015. And I had to go five months without playing a, a show, which was the longest time since, other than this, that we've gone without playing a show. And there was um, no rehearsal for that show coming back. Oh, crazy! It was at headlining Primavera. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah. and so you, so you'd been doing these months of like physical therapy, trying to get back. I've been, I had been then, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you hadn't. Did you not play the drums a single time before you walked on not stage? Really, at Primavera? Not really. Not. I mean, I'd sat down, but I was like, I, I, I don't even want to think about it. I think I'll be fine. And you know, the weird thing is, it wasn't my shoulder that I had problems with. It was my my ankle got cramped, which had never happened to me before. So, have you ever been on stage and felt like your body was failing you? Like, is that the only time? Only time that's really ever happened. I mean, I've been crampy or something, but like, I've got really spun out on stage. I got severe, like, well, there are some other things that were going into it. Like, I. This was in 2010 at Lollapalooza. It was like, I was in a big, uh, I was trying to stay thin. I just turned 30 and I felt like I was getting old and I've learned better. I've just gotten fat since that <laughs> happened. But I was like drinking a lot of Red Bull and 
<laughs> Smoking a lot of cigarettes and who knows, not getting enough rest. You know how it is on, yeah. on the road. But um, we go out on stage and at the very end of the first song, I like miss a beat by like 10 milliseconds. Just like, and it, something happened where I like got jolted out of the trance of playing live, which is the place where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I looked up, it was like I crossed the beams or something. I looked up and out to the audience and the sun was just like setting right over the audience. And like, it was just so bright and there's so many people. And I was like, I, it was during the ascent of the, our album brothers mm-hmm. kind of taking off. So my body didn't fail me, but my mind did. And I got really panicky. I was like, oh man, like I could just fuck this whole thing up right now. And, like, feeling the weight of the years past and well, feeling like and the, the, the ascent, the, the ascent well, that you were feeling then. Yeah, it was like at the time, like we kind of always felt like the underdog band, I guess, to a certain degree. We were doing well, but we weren't ever getting played on the radio or anything like that. But it, it, things had changed. We started getting all that stuff. And then here we are at Lollapalooza, which we'd played like four or five times before. But this time there's like 50,000 people watching us. We were playing before the strokes, and uh, I just felt the pressure for the first time. So my body didn't feel me, but I, I I was in a full panic attack for the whole show. Jesus, I look at the I look at the video of that, and like no one no one could tell. But I was like, and it lasted weeks, and weeks and weeks, and I had residual effects from that. On like his, in future shows, every every time I got on stage, till probably there's a little element of that I still deal with. I know how to deal with it now a little bit, but I had to go see. I I I didn't want to take like a beta blocker, and I didn't want to take like a Valium or drink before I play. So the only solution I could come up with was it was suggested to me to go see this hypnotist. I like where this is going. This guy in Santa Monica named Kerry Gaynor, who specializes obviously in like smoking stuff. Uh, but he also fear of flying is a big thing. Mm, yeah, but yeah. But stage fright for actors. He's he worked a lot with Broadway actors. I went to go see the guy, and he basically got he got me out of that headspace. So this is a full this is a full recommendation of oh yeah. Pacific I Coast. mean yeah. Did I mean I, I recommend once? him for. I saw him two days back to back, and the you weird, were good. The weirdest thing happened yeah. is I, I like the weirdest thing is that this after the second night. We were doing two nights at the Palladium. This is in 2010. It was because this was October of 2010, I think, and I I had been in a panic since August, since Lollapalooza. <laughs> since Lollapalooza, waking up and like every day I wake up like, oh, I feel fine today, and then mm-hmm. as soon as I thought that, I'd be like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a wreck. So that I woke up in a stairwell at the Roosevelt Hotel in, in Hollywood in my underwear after the second <laughs> show, after the second hip. hip <laughs> Hypnosession. Yeah. Yeah. I had like slept walk for the second time in my life. Oh, man. And I was like, man, what room am I in? No key or anything. I was like, man, I just remember the seven. I'm like kind of good at remembering certain numbers. I was like, uh, 709. So I just walk. I was like on the fifth floor. I walk up to the seventh floor, knock on the door. And my girlfriend was in the room. I was like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. Are you goodness. doing in your underwear? I was like, honestly, she's like, I heard the door close. Like, couple of minutes ago whatever like man i don't know i guess it's the hip hypno session like some reverberation of yeah, who knows i'm like there's probably i'm probably like a manchurian candidate now <laughs> you've been replaced <laughs> mm-hmm. ever since okay. the the brothers uh mid mid brother cycle 
But yeah, so my I've never been on stage and been like, oh man, I, I don't know how I'm physically going to be able to do this because I guess I just would play softer or something. Mm-hmm. But I've been on stage where things have just gone completely wrong. That's one where my brain broke. Yeah. We know each other quite well and we've we've talked about some of the stuff, but I am interested to hear more about, sometimes it can be romanticized, but some of those earlier lean years in particular, like you guys had a full six or seven years before we even got in a van and, yeah. you know, drove to Denton, Texas or whatever. When you think back of that time, do you forget stuff? Is, is it just sort of, do you remember just the positive times? When you think back to those sort of earlier first couple records, what do you think of? I, it's positive, yeah. But if I really think hard, then I can think of all the frustrations. And We really didn't have another option. We both wanted to be musicians, and the only way for us to make it work was for, for us to have found each other. You know, which was already like the odds of that are pretty unusual. Be able to get along, be able to have the same tastes or the same goals in mind. So all that stuff is very, really crazy that we were able for that stuff to align. And on top of it, we, our brothers were friends. We grew up in the same neighborhood. So basically, when we start decided to like, when we got this little record deal and decided to get going, there's no B plan. We both had dropped out of school. We both hated school because. It's not really not intelligent, but I said we hate school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was like, I just had like some pretty horrible teachers and shit, and so did Dan. And we just felt like if we can't be musicians, we could, or we can't be professional musicians, but at least we're always going to play music. And if we have something to fall back on, then we probably would fall back on it. And there were times when I'm sure that would have happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we made this record and we booked some shows around Ohio and our our label in California, this little, it's basically just a dude with the mail order business. He found this agent named Ralph Carrera, who's like a kind of mercenary agent who agreed to book a tour for us with like $50 guarantees across the country. So we got in my van and printed out the addresses of phone numbers and we just left. And it actually ended up being one of the most insane three weeks of our lives. And, and we just never stopped but there's basically some decisions that we made early on that I think looking back at it now as almost a 40-year-old, I'm thinking about how good the decisions were, but how hard they were. Like we had basically a, an offer on the table from Warner Brothers when we were 22 to sign to a six-figure record deal through Seymour Stein. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, we were talking to Seymour Stein on the phone. Like, you know, this is like basically for us pre-cell phone, we're sitting by the answering machine and stuff and make, getting these calls from him. And he's like, kept telling us the contract was going to come. And our, we, we waited literally three weeks. We had like no... To come in the mail? Yeah, we like, our timeline, everything was so fast for us. We were like... we You're always we, going. We had no patience for anything. So we, we're like, if you can't get us a contract in three weeks, we're not going to sign with you. Because that means you can't get, you're not going to get anything done for us. So we didn't yeah. get we didn't get the contract, and we just literally called so it. called Seymour Sign and said we're not going to sign with you. We're going to sign with <laughs> Fat Possum in Mississippi, yeah, for twelve thousand dollars, all in to make a record, and we made it in my basement on this tape machine, and mailed it to him two days later. FedExed it, the CD to him, and that was it. And basically, by doing that, we guaranteed ourselves like six more years of of <laughs> yeah. Of hard labor, <laughs> but the thing is, if we would have just taken the, that deal, I, I know for a fact you would not be sitting here talking to me today. Right. Had you had you taken the the first the record deal? Yeah, 
How long did you guys tour or was just the two of you in a van? I mean, 2002. Th- I mean, we'd bring out, like, my brother would come yeah. or we'd bring out a friend. But as it primarily was just Dan and I for, uh, yeah, until we, the first time we were able to bring out a tour manager. 2004, we brought out a sound woman who also helped tour manage and her boyfriend who sold merch. And it was a disaster. And we spent three <laughs> months in a van with them. Uh, and they were just, they were vegan and unable to eat food anywhere in Europe. And it was a fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> and we had this really lovely, uh, amazing guy who came out on next to do sound for us, who was always on the phone with his girlfriend. He was a great guy, but he'd be on his cell phone. Cell phones had come into the picture. Oh, point. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is 2005. He would just be on his cell phone. Like you'd think he was asleep, or and he and then he'd start, <laughs> he'd start talking to him. He'd have one of those earpieces, and he's like, "Hold on, babe." I'm like, "Dude, you're not even talking." It was, seriously, six, seven hours a day in the van, just like, just we, like assuring. We couldn't listen to music, and was, just like assuring her that he was, dude, just he was just completely dating a crazy person. <laughs> that's the thing. That see, that's the thing you kind of forget, like as you get on the bus, you get in your own bunk and stuff, but you forget, like, oh yeah, like. It was a communal space. The communal space of the van is very, after a couple of weeks of that, like we were always told by other bands, like don't tour for more than four weeks in a row because you won't be a band anymore. And it's pretty much true. After like a four and a half week, five week van tour, you're not going to want to talk to your bandmates for a while. We never went over that. Maybe approached maybe the that. Fir- we did the first Euro one in the Sprinter, but maybe because it was like, Everything was so new, we managed to do it. But yeah, we would kind of cap it at three and a half weeks in the van days. <laughs> yeah. Every time we did it, we'd come home, like, our girlfriends would have left us. And it wasn't like we were, like, fucking around on the road or anything. It just was, like, sucks for them. It sucks for us. And also, they're, like, you're emotionally vacant. Like, I, I had a girlfriend once tell me, I came home after a month on tour. She's like, I had to leave you because you're emotionally vacant. I was like, I'm living in a moving vehicle with like five other people i'm sleeping like four hours a night because we have to wake up we don't get done loading out till yeah. one we have to leave for the next gig at six in the morning and like i am emotionally vacant because <laughs> if i was emotionally available i would certainly not be in this van you have to kind of kill part of yourself to do it <laughs> like how observant of you <laughs> i mean I, I did always feel it it's, was, it's, yeah it's be critical of me it's like it's like that'd be like me calling her during her finals week and be like you're emotionally vacant right now <laughs> while you're writing your thesis i always thought it was very symbolic that literally the night before we left new york on our first van tour was the day that first iphone came out that was summer of 2007 yes yeah very good and also not to pick corporation but chris bayer also had a trio i did i had a trio on that first now what's the trio it was a phone that had kind of blackberry it was recommended to us by adam voith our booking agent our booking agent adam voith who you know but i had we had talked about it in the band and we agreed that for that month because you know we wanted to have my phone for looking up maps and shit like that yeah that I would get half of my half bill, bill paid back, <laughs> but I never actually got oh, you never paid. Got that? I never no, I never actually 
submitted the receipts. The, I never submitted the receipts for the like sixty five bucks or whatever. So well, with interest, it's been. I know. Yeah, right? it's, it, yeah. like it's been an escrow since then. Yeah, fluctuating between one and a half and three percent since then. <laughs> you start compounding. Yeah, it's compounding. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, you also you could say that you have like payday lending on that. It's <laughs> yeah. ten thousand percent a year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like I like where this is going. We got in there just a few years before you, so we we got the uh, the, the experience end. of touring yeah. pre smartphone, which I always feel like it must be seismic. Must yeah, have been you're seismic. The, the greatest generation. <laughs> we used to get the Rand McNally, like the full nationwide Atlas. I have one here. Actually, they actually sent me one, and I don't know why. I guess just because they <laughs> we talk about touring so much. They sent me one recently. I was like, man, this is insane. I showed it to. My stepdaughter, she's like, "What? What's what is this? this?" I was like, "Oh my god, I gotta show you." I was like, "Look, this is this how we. This is, this is what is we where used Saint to Louis do." Saint Louis is, but it was more vague. It was like so insane because I'm. Just, I was thinking. I was remembering, like we would be showing up to in all, a city. Like it's one to, thing to get to a city, but to find the club. Well, it's one thing also if you show up to the city five hours early. What do you do? All those clubs are closed, and you're like, "Oh, usually well, let's go to the club. There's a cool little area." It's got to be a cool area. Half the time, it's it's not. So then you have to kind of get good at looking at the map and guessing what could be the cool area. And we, I had like a 50-50 I bet you'd rate. be good at that. I could, well, I could see I, that being in your skill set. I was okay at it. What always threw me off were the, like I'd see a college in a bigger city. Like if you see a college in like, you know, Lawrence, Lawrence Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas, that's what I was you're saying. Gonna, you're good. But if you see a college in like Omaha – and I wasn't really big into college sports then. I was like, yeah, Great. there's going to be, this is going to be cool. Then you go there. It's like, it's like literally the community college. There's nothing there, but you know, some of the cities are really hard to figure out. Like still Louisville. I can't figure out where to go in Louisville. It's a we, beautiful town. We but played, I, I is still, that headliners? That yeah. The legendarily had one bathroom. There's no, artist there's no artist bathroom, bathroom and headliners. headliners. There's a good bar there called the mag bar, Magnolia bar, but still it's, it's all spread out. It's, yeah, some cities are impossible to figure out. So, and I think about bands that went through Akron or, or something. Yeah, they were just fucked because there's <laughs> literally like there's like four streets that are each like a block long where you can find something cool. Right, and the rest of it, it's like you don't really want to hang out there. What's what would you say from those first couple of years? If if one comes to mind, what would you say was your? Can you pick like a worst and a best show from the early from those early years? Yeah, was just well. The worst show and the best show. Same? No, but back to back. Ah. Hell yeah. Yeah. And it was on the first tour. On that first? On that first week? tour. We So the tour basically was like routed. So we played Chicago. It went Chicago, Denver, straight to Vancouver. But after the Vancouver show, we played in Seattle. And we played at this place, Chop Suey. And um, we opened up The Stranger, I guess it was. And there was a write-up about the keys, which is the first, like not a write-up, but a show preview. You know, like a little paragraph in the Alt Weekly. Yeah, it was the first time we'd ever been written up outside of Akron or Cleveland, and it, there, there's like some hype. You know what I mean? Like, check out this band. It's and we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> we play it. We ended up like there are like a hundred people at the show, which was our biggest show ever at that point. And we made like five hundred and fifty bucks, which was basically Sick. like making half a million dollars at Mandalay Bay at the time. And <laughs> um. And we were fucking set. We were like, this is insane. We just paid all the gas and tolls, probably. We were, sleep- we, were, we were sleeping in the van. Yeah. By the way, the worst show we ever played was the next night at the Satyricon, which is, I guess, where 
Kurt Cobain met uh, Courtney Love. I also think. in Seattle? or No, it was in Portland. It was a shithole. It smelled like puke. It was like a famous club. I think Cream had played there. Maybe no, even well. Zeppelin. But for us, there was no one there. We were opening for this like speed metal band who were like 10 years older than us. They were like there to freak us out because like this is what's going to this is going to be you. Oh, like scared straight sort of shit. Yeah, when you're 32, <laughs> you're, you're going to have like a worse van than you do now. And you're going to have these guys who are just like from Arizona and they're like, hey guys, like, I don't know, are you familiar with this neighborhood? And it's like, no, man, never been to Portland. It's like, it's real dangerous, lots of drugs, don't talk to anybody. And uh, just be real careful. And like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is the oh, this is the band, and they're like a yeah. nobody, you know. What I mean, like, no one knows this. These guys are just on a perpetual tour, and um, it probably was us in an alternate dimension that came back. And then we go, we sit in the parking lot across the street from the venue before the gig, and we're trying to sleep because we're all exhausted. And we see the opening band come out and immediately try to buy drugs off of someone the dude steals their money and starts running down the street then the whole band starts chasing this guy and it's like man this is here we go <laughs> the it. highs and lows anyway the show the show yeah it was just like how many people were there no one but then a drunk couple came in and danced for like two songs while we were playing and left did you perform for zero it was yeah the show must go on it works on. <laughs> yeah there was a lot of that though, you know, hit and miss. You'd be like, coming. To, I remember the first time I came to Nashville, it was just a couple of people. You know, it's fucking difficult. Yeah. Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Road Taken is brought to you by Dave. Dave is not a person, but actually an app. And you know what kind of sucks? When you overdraw from your bank account. Happened to me a couple times back in the day, and uh, I remember it, like I said, kind of sucking. That's why the Dave app was invented, to put an end to overdraft fees for good. Dave is the number one budgeting app in America because it saves you from overdraft fees and reminds you about upcoming bills. It can advance you $75 from your next paycheck with no credit check and no interest. It's a great service for just a dollar a month. Because Dave will help you budget, and if you're spending too much, the app will text you to make you stop. Mark Cuban, nice, I've heard of him, is an investor in Dave because he got crushed by overdraft fees in his 20s, so he gets it. So between the two of us, we own one NBA franchise and both suffer from overdrafting in our 20s. Three million people already use Dave to save up to $1,000 a year in overdraft fees. Go to dave.com slash road. It really helps the show if you let them know you heard about them here. Then download Dave and never pay another overdraft fee again. It's immediate savings. Go to dave.com slash road. Nice. Let's get back to the show. Like you were saying, was it just kind of the drive, the allure, the idea of being a musician? Or was it sort of you felt, even if it was small increments, that you and Dan, the Black Keys, you know, like had some momentum or like had footing in a way that you felt, you know, it was worth following I mean, through on? All we did is listen to music. You know, all we did is listen to music and want to play it and wanted to do it. And we just felt like, if we just kept at it, it would it would work. And it's a long learning curve figuring it out. I'm still learning just the process of 
of getting a band going. Not even like the music part. I'm just talking about like they're two separate things, obviously. I know a lot of great bands that have never had any success. Most great bands that don't have any success. Success isn't, I don't think, really correlates with the quality of the music much. So I think there's two different things, you know? So it's like the process of being in a band is, it is like business. Yeah. It is making decisions. It's also just strategizing. Like, is it, does it make sense to go to Europe for six weeks and get pneumonia and lose money <laughs> just because your label told you it's important for you to go there? Well, you got to do that a few times before you realize that, you know, it's not important. Right. You know, I'm curious, I guess, especially because you said the roots of the band are in producing and making records. Did tours feel burdensome did that feel like time that you would rather have spent in the studio making records at that time in your life or was it a fun thing i mean we loved making records and we but we never we didn't understand it how it worked until our third record probably i remember on our second record i'm sure this is how it worked for you guys too up until this is kind of the mo still currently which is like your agent and your manager whoever like your record's coming out. You guys got to go on tour to promote the record before it comes. Do a pre-album release tour. We that just was like, we just completed that. Yeah, right. So that was like the thing. Like, go tour before the record comes out. We did this pre-tour, pre-album release tour. We went out, went out for before our record Thick Freakness came out, and we got home from the tour like April tenth, I think. I'm pretty good at remembering dates, but it was like a couple of days after the record came out. After like a month being on the road, I call our booking agent at the time. Like, so I guess we need to start working on that next record. He's like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Your record just came out." I was like, "Yeah, but once we make it, it's gonna be like six months. He's like, you can't put two records out in a year. You're gonna go on tour." I was like, "We just, we just fucking went on tour." And he said, "No, man, that was not the tour. The tour is like the rest of the year. You're gonna be gone. Wait, I want to send you dates in a couple days." And he was not lying. And no one was there to prepare us for that. I mean, we didn't have a manager at the time. So we get this thing. We go. Turns out that that year we were on tour the whole fucking year. And um, it was exciting, but it was exhausting. And we were we were traveling and make, making no money. And we kept going to Europe, which was cool because it was Europe. I'd never been to Europe. We get to go to Europe. I could afford like a one beer and a cup of coffee. You know, we were making 100 pounds a show if we were lucky. By the time we paid for the driver and gas in one hotel room or something, we were negative 100 pounds. So all that money was coming out of record royalties. Yeah. And then we get to the end of the year. We're supposed to go do this month-long run of Europe in November of 2003, and we had to, we just canceled the whole show. The band almost fizzled right then. Because of exhaustion or overextension? Because of overextension, you know, and because of the the burden of of touring, and so we ended up going in, uh, taking that month off, and running a spot, and going in, and we did a couple shows in January, but we went and just made a record, and that seems to be the thing. Like if we start burning out, we just like like uh, El Camino. Yeah, I was gonna say because I do remember you guys were gonna do like an Australian tour on Brothers, yeah, and that record was doing incredibly, and at the time it kind of blew my mind that you canceled tour dates to make a record because you could have written that record for another 18 months probably at that point would be my guess. Well, that's the thing is that no one really let us know. <laughs> but I do know this. Uh, our record bro yeah, Brothers had come out and was doing really well. 
it was strange to me because I was used to the process at this point. This is our sixth record. So I was used to like, your record comes out, your second week sales are half of your first week and your third week's half your second week. And before you know it, you're at like f selling 500 copies of the record for the next year. And that's awesome. You're, yeah. Um, but for that record, this is the first time that like we get to like week seven and it's like 13,000 copies are selling a week, which was insane amount of copies because our previous album had sold like 20,000 the first week and then gone to About five. The normal, the normal route. Yeah. yeah. So we're like, man, we like clocked up like a couple hundred thousand record sales just through like July. The record came out in May and it was like, man, this is like, is this ha it's happening? Is this happening? We have like a hit record and we're like, I think we have a hit record and it was, that's like right when I had that fucking panic attack. It was like, that was the combination yeah. for it. But the other thing was this, is that we were booked. We booked the whole year without knowing in April, without knowing anything, but that's the thinking the same old shit. And, um, and we were going to go to Australia and not make any money. We were going to be down there for three and a half weeks. And, uh, we were burned out. We had played 115 shows or something. You guys know what that's like. You guys play more shows than any other band. I know you have, which yeah, is yeah. probably why you just took a five-year break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Because that's what happens. You burn out. But anyway, um, we were like supposed to go to Australia in January to play Big Day Out in January 2011. And we, we paid $200,000 out of our own pocket, which was most of the money we had made the previous year to not go on tour. That's how much we didn't want to go. Wow. So we paid two hundred grand, dollars yeah. <laughs> I'm within 2000 on that. <laughs> To not go on tour, but what, what we did want to work. So we went right in the studio, we called up Danger Mouse, and we went and made El Camino. Cause, so it's like every time that when things stop being fun, we go make a record. It's always the most fun. It's the main thing we're trying to accomplish on, on this record cycle is like yeah. figure out, you know, make a record, which we've done, that we're happy with, and have fun doing it. And then play enough shows where people get to see us and we get to have fun, but it's not the burden of committing to being gone for 18 months. Right. Because that's unsustainable and it's insane. And you lose, it's like you start getting resentful of, of everything. You see your, your agent at home with his kid, like just taking 10% of all the money that you make. And you're like, you're like, you fucking asshole. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like you made one phone call. You, what the fuck? You're making more money than I am. You motherfucker. That, that's what starts happening, you know? Yeah. yeah. What do you foresee in this upcoming tour as a way of, of keeping it fun and loose? I think part of it is the volume of, and how far out you agree to do stuff. Is know? keeping the volume manageable. Yeah. We've been having fun by like not agreeing to do anything <laughs> <laughs> uh, aside from a couple shows and we keep getting offers to do stuff and it's like, I just I get a kick out of it where it's like our manager who I love you know I love all the people we work with obviously but I do get a kick out of like getting a European tour proposal submitted like so how much money are, well this one's not really about the, the money I was like well how much money are you going to be making <laughs> <laughs> so like we if you waive your commission maybe we'll we can do the tour since we're going to be the ones doing the work. And you can just commission the next one. <laughs> so that what do they say when you say that? I mean, they know I'm joking, but at the same time, I'm not really. <laughs> no, no, there's I mean, but I'm, truth, there's yeah. some truth to it. Is this the most you've ever said no this time around? This is the most we've ever said no. Yeah, and it's and it's actually 
Dan and I had a, had an agreement where I told him, you know, he's hesitant about wanting to tour, just like you know, I I'm probably less hesitant, you know what I mean? But either way, we're on the same page. And I told him if something doesn't feel like it's fun, we won't do it. And the Woodstock thing didn't feel like it was going to be fun because it was going to be our first show back in four years. So we we were going to get paid a lot of money. And we said no, you know. So I, I think it freaks out some people that you work with when you start doing it. But it's like, if you have a good reason, the theory for me is like, if it makes, a, you know, if you can get more interesting things, maybe it makes the agent or the manager look for more interesting things. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe maybe the work, it disappears. But either way, you won't be in a field in Leedsbig sweating your balls off <laughs> for 12 hours before you get on the bus and do it all over again. Right. <laughs> I mean, that seems true to... To maybe the initial impulses you were talking about of the, like the Seymour Stein stuff. Yeah, I mean, we could be making a lot of money this year, mm-hmm. but we're probably signed up for eight more years of <laughs> hard labor. <laughs> I'm curious because I think it's clear to anyone listening to this that you are really interested in the business side of things. Were you the one who would settle with the promoter at the end of the day when you would play for like 50 people on a van tour? Um. Yeah. Were you that. always as equally? Interested? I have all the, all the tour books and stuff of how much money we spent on gas. And Dan yeah. had a, Dan had a five dollar wonton soup allotment. <laughs> <laughs> I I allotted him five bucks to get wonton. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing that would drive me nuts in the early days. Is that like he needed to have certain things that I thought were just like crazy, like a hot meal. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what do you need this for? I'm like, you're such a pussy, man. You need to, you need to eat soup right now. Like, <laughs> just eat like a bag of chips. We gotta get, we gotta drive. He's like, dude, you're psychotic. And I, I yeah, I mean, it's weird because history it, might be on his side of that one. I mean, no, uh, he's right. Yeah, but the wonton soup over and over again—that's also kind of psycho. What, what, what was that? Is it was like good for his voice, or he just loves wonton soup? Loved. <laughs> I don't know. Did that you ever just, get to the bottom of that? That was just his thing for a while, long time. Do you ever look past, like, look back in those old books? Uh, I haven't in a while. They're all in a storage unit I have. Bet there's some real gold in there. <laughs> I mean, like, would there be, like, settlements from, from shows, say, like, the, the was this the Satyricon, Satyricon in Portland? Oh, I of, like, two page. I, I think I probably have write, <laughs> some notes on that stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, my thing was, like, I had a, I had a lawn mowing business. But calling it a business is a stretch. I had a lawnmower and a weed whacker and a gas can and a station wagon, and I would go mow lawns for this guy that owns a bunch of property that was very terrible. Uh, in Akron. In Akron. Like slum kind of things. I would mow lawns for him, which is cool. Like a guaranteed like $200 to do it i would mostly be picking up 40 ounce bottles so when we first went on tour like on that first tour we were making 50 dollars, and i was just so stringent with the money is that the right word yeah uh uh, that um stingy just like i made a dollar i stretched a dollar yeah i slept made a sleep in the van because also dan i we quit our jobs so this was going to be our job this was yeah so we came home from the tour i'll never forget with 750 bucks each which was sick, yeah. Which was three weeks, which is basically exactly what we were making when we were at home working the whole time. That's amazing. So we actually made money, but 
the next thing was we didn't have any more gigs booked. So we had, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we did. We that's came, we, we came home and we made more, we booked more gigs. And, uh, and I remember coming home from that tour, my roommates had stopped taking care of shit a little bit. And I, I was so deprived of nutriment that like I went to the store and I, I knew something was wrong with me because I had a shopping cart and there's like a cucumber an apple like there's like real vegetables and fruit and and like I brought it home and my roommate's like man what's wrong you've changed <laughs> what's wrong you must that cuz they were all musicians too like man that tour must have been rough I was like yeah dude I like need vegetables and like oh man you need to go to sleep I've been taking like trucker speed to stay up on that stuff cuz I was doing all these night drives Oh, like all night long like drives. The powder stuff, or they're called yellow jackets, and that's when it's allowed. Like the real, you can get them at like gas stations, right? Like oh yeah, but they, they changed the drug that's in it. But yeah, because our drives were insane. It would be like, you, well, Chicago to Denver, as you mentioned earlier, is a crazy one. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Well, Denver to Vancouver, Vancouver, so yeah, he's also insane. <laughs> all, all of them were crazy. Oh man, but um, I put all these vegetables I bought on the counter of my place. And I went up to my bedroom and just laid in bed and was shaking. Just couldn't stop shaking. Like coming down from like a drug, which I was. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then I was like went downstairs to like, I was going to eat like just like a raw cucumber. Like I just like obviously like something so fucked up with my body. It's like I was craving <laughs> like vitamin E or something. And there's an apple. One of my apples just had a bite taken out of it. Just left right there on the counter. <laughs> A single bite? A single bite. I'm like, who the Very fuck does that? What, who, who are these fucking animals I live with? And that, then I did get to the bottom of it later that day because I, I also bought like a Stouffer's lasagna. You know, like a Hungry Guys. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> it was like five bucks and like, you know, like four pounds of meal. <laughs> so I turned on the stove and to like cook this thing. This is the same day, right? And the whole house starts smelling like shit. It's like, what the fuck? is in the oven. I couldn't figure it out. Like, there's nothing in there. The smell was just coming out of the oven. And then I open up the bottom pot drawer. <laughs> Where you keep the extra. Which like, is a broiler yeah, in some yeah, ovens. Yeah. And um, my cucumber was in there and my apple bite was in there. And we had become infested with rats <laughs> while I was away. There was a rat nest in there. So they And they stole your vegetables. <laughs> You didn't cook the rats. That was what I was worried no, about. No, I didn't cook that. I cooked the rat shit, though. It smelled like so terrible. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. So I put poison around there the next day. And then, like, for the next couple of weeks, we're sitting there trying to book gigs, getting phone calls from Seymour Stein, and poisoned rats are moseying around in daylight with blood coming out of their mouths <laughs> in my living room. Oh, Truly the beginnings of a legendary story. Dude. It's a real hero's journey, I think. <laughs> it is. Knowing how, like, on top of business shit you were from day one, the fact that you made money on that first tour is pretty amazing because I remember that experience for us. We, like, we broke even on that first tour and we were fucking psyched. Was it hard for you making those decisions of, like, okay, now we're ready for a tour manager. Oh, okay, now it makes sense for us to get on a bus. Like, on the business side, when, you know, your costs can spiral out and get so much bigger... I what was always, that process for you? I used to always say, like back then, I was like, I would never have a drum tech. I would never pay someone. I can't imagine paying someone like a thousand dollars a week to set my drums up, like because I was making a couple hundred dollars a week at that point. If I was lucky, I, like, I would just pocket that money. And then what happens is like you realize, like 
partially it's not a great look to be setting up your own drums in front of like a couple thousand people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it does, not, it does and, save you and, some. And now, yeah, now, but, I kind of think it's a good look. I kind of think it's a good look, but it's not exciting. You know what I mean? It kind of comes down to that. But then also it becomes like you realize you got shit to do. I mean, the tour becomes it's not not just driving and loading and, and unloading. It's like you don't even have time to the unloading and loading. You're doing press. You're doing interviews. You've got meet and greets. You got all kinds of stuff to do. But the point is, like, when you start having to hire people to do stuff, this is like kind of the biggest lesson that I learned. It applies to the creative side too. Um, Dan and I were always like super DIY. We still are to to a, a large degree. You know what I mean? When it comes to how we make the creative side of it, but we were DIY on everything back in the day. But we we didn't get super successful until we learned how to let people help us. That is something that a lot of indie bands struggle with. A lot of smaller bands or a lot of bands that should be bigger than they are. You're wondering why, like, why isn't that band bigger than they are? It's like, well, it's probably because they won't let someone fucking help them. Meaning a producer, a mixing engineer, a manager. If we hadn't met Brian, Danger Mouse, it was a learning process to meet him, to develop trust with him, and then for him to basically teach us to shut the fuck up and listen and let ideas kind of present themselves. And it's, it's no different with the business side. It's like, I, I have, you know, I was like, I know how to stretch a dollar. I know how to save money. I'm like still like insanely about saving money. Like almost, it's like a fucking problem with me. But when it comes to the band, like what, what works for me might not work for Dan. So it's good to have a manager or a business manager, someone who's there, who's able to think a couple steps ahead of you. You know what I mean? And like to know that. To keep that wonton budget. In to play. keep that wonton budget. You know what I mean? It's like, I think that a good manager is one that helps strategize, but also helps execute your ideas better than you could have ever imagined them being done. And this is a, that's why when you do get to the point where, if you're lucky enough to get to the point to hire people, you got to realize that that's what it's all about. It's like you end up with a better show if you have a guitar tech because the guitar player doesn't have to worry about breaking a string, how that's going to, what's that going to present during the show, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And I think finding Chad Blake to be our mixing engineer and learning to send him a record and then to send him minimal notes or just basic notes or basic guidance and not be like the hi-hat here needs to come up a quarter dB. Like to know that that's not a fucking effective way to get the power of Chad Blake. Mm. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. Chad doesn't need me to tell him what I think about a hi-hat volume. <laughs> I mean, Chad. Yeah. Chad needs me to be like, I like it. I don't like it. It's not ballsy enough, or it's too forward, or, or something. But the detail—that's why you hi- you hired him because he knows how to do that shit. Learning to find that the person that has some sort of intrinsic talent and crazy X factor, like that's what you want to surround yourself with. Whether it's your bandmates, anything, you know. And I think that we've gotten good at that, and we were horrible at that at the beginning. And that's part of the reason why if we would have signed that deal with Sire in 2002, we didn't know how to work with anybody. We didn't know how to take good advice for, and not be defensive about it. We would have fucking fizzled. We would have fucking floundered. We would have been told that we didn't have a single and told someone to go fuck off. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, we ended up in a situation where like when we made Brothers, I mean, it was, we, were, we were pretty sure without being told that we didn't have a single. <laughs> <laughs> so we went and made it. We made made one more song, and we weren't that certain about it. So we made it another song, and then I played it for my fr- our friend Leon, who's in the Arcs. He's like, "Yeah, that's your single." Boom. That's. So I was tied up. Yeah, but it's trusting, you know, trusting the 
Leon's opinion and trusting Danger Mouse who made the song with us. All that stuff, you know? And I think um, when we first started the band, I feel like things were a little bit different. Like, it was considered like not maybe not that cool to be aware of the business side or acknowledge the business side, and maybe even to the states. So I think that remains yeah. true. There's a certain I, I stigma. It's still, it's still, but it's perpetuated by people who don't want you to know the business side. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, I, and I've always been like, I've always fuck been. That. Well, I've always been like, fuck that. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's not punk rock to, to learn the business side. Well, why do all these punk rock labels have owners that have millions of dollars? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Epitaph. It's worth like fifty million dollars. <laughs> no, I mean the those people are good, smart people, or whatever. But when we first started, it wasn't cool to to approach a band like that, like in some sort of somewhat savvy way. But it was considered really cool for hip hop artists to approach yeah, that way. So, to know so that it's just it's just that. it's just the it was like it's some sort of weird alternative indie rock punk rock thing. But in, in, not punk rock because in punk rock it always was take the money and tell me to fuck off. I mean, and I I did think that that was cool. I do think it's stupid to do that because you end up with the Sex Pistols situation where your band is done in eighteen months or something. But I do think that that is a, another crucial thing to take the time to learn it and to understand the music business and to think criti- yeah. and to think very critically about it. You know, to question the shit that's just kind of presented as being a normal, a normal, a normal thing. You know, we were talking about bundling earlier and. That's the process of which you buy a ticket and a or a T-shirt or a monster, a monster energy drink, and a record is included in the sale. Um, and I have deep thoughts on it because we almost did it on this record and we decided we decided not to. But I do think it's the ultimate fucking of the artist because it's essentially the artist giving the money back. You're, you're giving money on tickets that you sold back to the label in exchange for a number that if you get enough of, you'll get one of these gold discs on the wall or something. (laughs) It means nothing else. You don't get a royalty on it. It's completely pointless. So this time it was like, we basically were like, rather than take part in that and get a number one record and get, maybe get closer to getting a gold record for this. We don't want to um, partake in that system. You know, if the record industry is going to collapse, it should just fucking collapse. If the record label can't figure out how to how to make money, then that that's on the record label because that's what they do. You know what I mean? They figure out how to make money. Well, they don't advertise for our tour, so I just think things are a little bit backwards. And uh, yeah, it's like who's going to tell you not to do that? See, this is the thing. It's like, is a manager going to tell you not to do that? Well, some a good manager will, but uh, most managers won't because they have to deal with that label over and over and over again with different artists. Is a label going to tell you not to do that? Nope. Is the promoter? Promoter doesn't give a fuck what you do with your money. You know what I mean? No. Is your mom or dad? They don't know the difference. <laughs> yeah. I'm, but I, I'm going to tell you to not do it because it's yeah. fucking dumb. Um, we would have had probably a hundred thousand sales as of now, based on this bundling thing. But we would have given one one million dollars back to our record label. And our advance on this record was $800,000 because we already had given back $800,000 just basically because we wanted to make sure that there was a promotional budget. So we put it in an escrow account basically. But yeah, that's the business. It's like, so the artist is always the last one to get paid. That's why you should never be ashamed to try to get 
to fucking understand the business because no one's gonna fuck your manager gets paid whether you fucking make a dollar or not at a show if you get a thousand dollars at a gig your manager's gonna get his 15 percent whether you sleep in your van or in the ritz you know and that's the thing is you got to fucking pay attention to that shit yeah yeah wait can i ask a question which is sort of a diversion but it was something yeah. that i was interested in exploring that you mentioned to me in a previous conversation which was um that <laughs> that you said when you saw Vampire Weekend play SNL in 2008, you thought we were true little shits or something to that effect. I wondered if there was, a, if you wanted to expound on a, <laughs> on talking shit about, you know, earlier of Vampire Weekend from the Black East perspective. Well, I don't know if I really, I'm sure I said that because why wouldn't I have? But you know what? Here's what it is it's that resentment thing. It's not even competitiveness necessarily as much as it is, it's like, because you guys got on SNL on your first record and it took us basically we had to get nominated for Grammys and all this shit and it took us our sixth record to get on SNL uh, so yeah probably I think when you guys were playing it in like 2008 I was probably like this is fucking bullshit <laughs> yeah for sure you know what I mean but at that time that was the underdog status I mean but it motivated it's what motivated us it wasn't like this hatred thing. It was just like, fuck, man, we still haven't gotten ours. You know what I mean? Like, how many dues do we have to pay? How many fucking tours or whatever? You realize a lot of it has more oh, to do. Oh, dues, not dudes. Yeah. Is how many dudes do you okay. no. How many dues can you possibly pay? But no, it's, you know, we were doing everything ourselves early on. And then I think that when we started realizing that it's okay to let people in to help, whatever, that's when things started kind of turning around. And we yeah. got less resentful because it, it was also, uh, we ultimately realized that the accountability for your, our success actually lied on our own. It lied on us to do the work and to become better songwriters and mu musicians. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like just because we'd been around. And that, that's the thing that, like, my perspective on all that has changed. Like, if I see, like, uh, Maggie Rogers or someone before they ever, as far as I know, play a show outside of a notable tour but get on SNL, I don't get salty about it. I actually get more concerned for the artist because you don't want too much too soon. You know what I mean? I you saw, was, everyone saw that with Lana Del Rey, like that performance on SNL was, it wasn't terrible or anything, but it was, it was like notable because she seemed a little bit unrehearsed <laughs> or something. And I was, I was nervous for her that it would just go up and smoke for a minute. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's where my head is at now. I think that's a really great lesson though. Like finding the people you trust to help you, yeah, well, well, to help facilitate you ultimately and like awesome. being able to relinquish some elements of control like I, I don't know I think that's really was that also straight. true on the live side when you went from two to four yeah I mean our, our thing was that we just hire musicians who are better than us to play with <laughs> us and that's why like we're not that worried about rehearsal because they're just going to teach us the songs oh hell yeah <laughs> it's like yeah yeah they just show up like what's it they have charts and everything it's like okay <laughs> All right, so here's a, here's a question I asked earlier, which I think maybe could sort of serve towards the wrap up. But I asked you this sort of about the lean years of like best and worst show. So let's say after Lollapalooza and the subsequent hypnosis, do you have a best and worst show from sort of the the last few years, like post Brothers? El Camino, era? Turn Blue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple. There's a lot of good shows actually. There's one in Portland, Maine, on El Camino that would just what about it? I, we never played Maine. It's the only time we ever played Maine, but it was like cold that 
that day, but it was like right when spring was starting to break, so it was sunny, and the, this like seventy five hundred people showed up to the, and just lost their minds. But but I think we've had quite a few shows. Like we played a show in Greece in twenty fifteen, right before their like re- referendum, like the day before, and it was just like the most electric crowd. I mean, most shows. I, I think I remember most shows. And most most crowds are good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like I approach every show like the crowd's going to be interesting. The last show that we played, it's not that we weren't speaking, but we weren't really speaking. <laughs> it was more like we just were like, God, it's it's time to take a break. It's time to take a break. Right. So after that last show, which was in San Francisco, Outside Lands, it was a weird adjustment. And I remember like kind of taking in that show, you know, and being like, this can't be the last show. Like while, like while, while we're we're playing. playing it. And as I'm playing it, I'm like, well, like San Francisco. What if this somehow is the last show? Because we don't have anything else booked for the first time, like in our career. We have nothing else lined up. Well, I started thinking about all the bands that had broken up. San Francisco being our last show. The Beatles, the Sex Pistols, the band. Oh man, I had like five or six more. That you just came up with while you were playing. While I was playing, I had those Lonely three. Boy I had those three. I had those three. I had the Beatles. I had the Sex Pistols. I had the band. It's I was pretty like, good. I was like, why is it everybody breaks up in San Francisco? I was like, I don't know. It's such a great city. Right. Yeah. They get the corporate offers to go do something else. <laughs> well, you know, part of this whole thing with the band, it's, you know, the band is a very special relationship and it's an organism. You know what I mean? It is like multiple needs, multiple desires. It is a hard thing to navigate but there's so few fucking bands that it is like a it's almost like it's an endangered species really is i mean i was looking at like i mean fuck there's so, there aren't that many you know i mean like there are bands how many bands are there that are real bands like you guys are one of the last ones you know there's hundreds of them but there's still not many not like yeah. it was and uh with dan and i there's been moments where i've just wanted to like you know, at one point we we were not not getting along, but just communicating poorly. And you know, I definitely have told Dan to fuck off before, and he's definitely told me to fuck myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the thing. It's like when I hear about like someone getting flustered with the band experience. I think more managers need to like get involved in that situation because we we don't know. No one know. No one. There's no fucking instruction manual. So you look for this guidance somewhere for someone to say. Like, Look, man, like it's okay to like just go to Mexico for two years, chill out. There's a lot of things that you can go do, but the reality is, is like none of us will ever be in a band like the ones we're in. It just, it's, right, it's yeah. just never gonna happen again. You can have another band, yes, for sure, but are you gonna have the experience that you just had? No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Is Paul McCartney ever gonna <laughs> after the Beatles? No. Is Joe Strummer after the Clash? No. Is anybody? Is Thurston Moore? No. Steve Malcolmus? No, 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 no. You can't replicate it. It's the one time, if you're lucky. You know what I mean? It's this very special thing, and it's a relationship that, like, as goofy as that some kind of monster movie is, where you're watching the therapist talk to Metallica. It's like, well, shit. At least sometimes, you know, it is a struggle, man. And there has to be some sort of way to navigate that. We've joked about writing the the guide of. how to keep the book the band together but it's like there's something to it there's something about a band there's something about like 
Do I love Luna? Yeah. Do I love Galaxy 500? Yes. Do I love Dean Wareham? Yeah. But is it the same when I see him play a Galaxy 500 song without Damon and Naomi? I've never seen that. I'd rather see Damon and Naomi. Mm-hmm. I'd ra- there's all these things. Would I wa- do I love Steve Malcolm's music? Yes. Would I want to see him play a Pavement song? Yes. Would I much rather let- see Pavement do it? Yes. It's just there's there's an X factor to the band. And it even goes down to like, as a fan, I get nuanced into like, who solo musicians play with or whatever and i personally i just have a mental block where like billy joel is automatically way less interesting to me than say the modern lovers just because it's a band mm-hmm. yeah. i mean also because it's billy joel and i'm not interested <laughs> in that but <laughs> i think we're good man that was great all right All right, thanks again to Patrick Carney of the Black Keys. We love that conversation. I would say that I generally love every conversation that I have with Patrick Carney. And as a little bit of an update, I did talk to him more recently than that talk. And that first round of rehearsals went really, really well. He said he was very excited. <laughs> and he, I think he was very pleased with his own, his own personal performance. So I was really glad to hear that. Yeah, I wonder how he would feel listening back to, you know, how he was feeling back in the beginning of June before the rehearsals. I feel so young and so innocent. and Different times, different, different times, worlds. Different times. Um, I really like the part where he talks about being a court jester for the Illuminati. Have there ever been times in your life where you felt that way? <laughs> uh, no. Not, yeah. Not really. Yeah. I mean, there have, there have definitely been times where we've been on stage and it's been, I've been very confused in terms of like the situation and and why we were there. But uh, I would not say Illuminati. It's never quite reached that level. What about you? No, I haven't, but it's definitely something to aspire to. I remember one time we were playing kind of early on at a picnic for a large company that I will not name, and everybody was having the barbecue and no one was watching the performance. Oh, but we did open for Ben Folds, which was fun. We did, yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Ben Folds. Um so we're going to wrap up in a minute, but before we go, we should mention we want to answer your questions. Anything you want to know about us and our experiences, please send us an email. As we've said multiple times, this is the first episode of The Road Taken, hopefully of many, but we are learning as we go. I hope we don't get canceled <laughs> after the first episode. We're waiting to hear back from, from Ringer HQ about if we're going to get the green light for the full season. This is just the pilot. Um, so we are going to be learning as we go along, and I think either with notes we got to be a little punchier. We got to have bring a little more energy to the mic or whatever it is or things that you Yeah, I, I think notes definitely tell us everything that we've done wrong on this podcast. We appreciate it. But also we want to answer any question you have for us and we want to have a regular mailbag segment at the end of every episode. So CT tell me, what is the email address to send your questions for us to? The road taken at the ringer.com. And since we don't have any listeners at this point, I'd like to kind of end this episode with me asking you a question. CT, what's your favorite item on a rider that you've ever put on a rider? Um, and also, just as a little background, the rider is the list of things that a band asks a venue to provide for them to give a performance. Probably most famously referenced in terms of, I believe Van Halen is the apocryphal story of only brown M&Ms or something like that. While we have not done that, First thought, best thought, I would say definitely dried mango. It's kind of a sweet treat. 
but it still kind of feels like healthy-ish mm. unless you get those ones with a lot, like the, all the granulated sugar, which depends on the regionally, like which ones you get. I would say that the quality of the dried mango that appears on a Vampire Weekend Rider has greatly improved from 2010 when I believe I put it on to today. The dried mango industry has really, the technology has, is, it's, it's, been an, it's been an amazing thing to be a part of, quite frankly. So I would say probably dried mango would be my mm-hmm. answer. What about you? Mine would definitely be one that I just recently added, which is fun sour candy. Like I said at the front of the show, I like spicy stuff, but I also like sour stuff as well. And adding the word fun to the request, uh, the venue will try its very best to make sure it is really fun. And I got to say, walking into the venue every morning and seeing something new that's sour and fun has really like improved my quality of life. And uh, yeah, it's just been wonderful. So that's definitely my, my number one rider edition. Okay, and this last part here is really important, and I think I should say that uh, this is when it really feels real. You know, when we get to do this little part where I've, I've heard so many times, <laughs> now it all feels real. When I get to say, if you like this episode, please, please, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts with a nice review. We promise you it really helps other people discover it, and if you would be so inclined to spread the word, tell your friends, post about us on social media. I'm sure we will be doing so from our platforms such as they are and so on and so on i think that this is like and subscribe this is straight up like and subscribe ct what's your twitter and instagram as a sign of my poor historically poor branding of myself they do not match my twitter is the real ct1 which was meant to be humorous i don't really know if it translates and my instagram is dams of the west and I am my last name backwards, Oyab, O-I-A-B, on both platforms. Well done. See, it's, it's even easier to present in this forum. And now we'd like to leave you with a quote from the great Yogi Berra. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>